If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. In this special bonus episode for you, we have brought together two of today's renowned philosophers on language and logic to give you exclusive insights into the latest developments in the philosophy of language and the future of analytic philosophy. From the lessons we can learn from Saul Kripke's book on naming and necessity, and to the importance of a good philosophy of language for a good metaphysics, this week we are in conversation with Saul Kripke and Timothy Williamson. American philosopher and logician Saul Kripke is a distinguished professor of philosophy, and his book Naming Necessity is considered one of the most important philosophical works of the 20th century. He is joined by British philosopher and Wiccan professor of logic at the University of Oxford, Timothy Williamson. Specialising in the philosophy of language, logic and metaphysics, Williamson is a fellow at the British Academy and a visiting professor at Yale University. Today's episode was recorded live at How the Light Gets In, the world's largest music and philosophy festival. For tickets to our upcoming festival and to see debates, talks and courses with the world's leading philosophers, from Slavoj Žižek to Sylvia Jonas and from Barry C. Smith to Brian Eno, head over to howthelightgetsin.org where you can see the full lineup and get your tickets today. We're also offering exclusive discounts for Philosophy for Our Times listeners, which we'll reveal at the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. Back now to Saul Kripke and Timothy Williamson. Why do you think that uh, the study of language is important to philosophy or is fruitful way of approaching the subject? Uh, if a proper name denotes something, it stands for the same thing even when you're talking about the way things might have been, right? And uh, so this led me to conclude that proper names were not uh, reducible to, I mean, even a historical figure like um, Julius Caesar. We don't really mean by that the person who crossed the Rubicon or something like that, because someone else might have done that, see, right? We mean him, right? And uh, I thought that this is really the um, appropriate view, even when talking about the actual world as well as other possible worlds, right? That is, uh, according to the sort of picture that I presented, a uh, name of a historical figure is passed from link to link, and people pick it up after many generations. They may not know where they got it from, and they probably learned some identifying facts about the historical figure, some of which might be legendary or incorrect, right, or not uniquely picking anyone out, right. 
So I got this theory about proper names, and then I thought they extended to some things like natural kind terms and so on. I know John Stuart Mill was someone who held that names were not just descriptions, the person who did that and so on, or the, well, I mean, one of the examples is a sit-down Dartmouth that lie at the back of the dart, but it might, even if it had not, that would still be Dartmouth, right? Okay, so I don't know. So I got into this sort of view and philosophy of language from that. Okay, I don't know if this picture. So, team. Well, I think in, in relation to the, the the particular episode that that Sol was recounting, I think one kind of lesson that you might draw is that although studying language doesn't necessarily tell you a huge amount about the underlying nature of the, the world. If, if you make mistakes about, about language, you are liable to be, to be led into extremely bad metaphysics. Uh, and even, you know, as it were, even if a good philosophy of language can't give you a good metaphysics, bad philosophy of language can give you bad metaphysics. And, and, I, th and I think people, because of mistakes that they were making in the philosophy of language, which I, I thought were corrected, um, were, were arriving at all sorts of conclusions about how, how they thought that there was some kind of basic logical problem about the ideas that things could have their own essential nature, which was just made them what the thing that they were. And, and they were ruling out a lot of metaphysical options on the basis of misunderstandings of language. I think... I mean, people talk a lot about the the linguistic turn in in philosophy, and you know, and it, for a long time, I think people were uh, treating this as some kind of completely irreversible turn in philosophy, by which somehow philosophy fundamentally had to do with with language and and words, and I, it's quite understandable why people would think something like like that, because one of the sort of central methodological problems for philosophy after the, the scientific revolution was how much room that, that the development of natural science left for philosophy to tell us anything about the, uh, the world. And I think, it, so one a sort of kind of retreat that, that pe attracted people uh, was the idea, well, you know, in, when we're doing philosophy, we're not really studying how the, the world is, we're just Study, you know, thinking about either how we do talk about it or what might be a better way of talking about it and so on, and just, as it were, clarifying language or something like, like that. And that, I mean, that was different versions of that idea were very influential. But I think it's becoming clearer that that was really a 20th century idea, which by the end of the 20th century was really actually on the way out. And it, it doesn't mean... That that you can't you know, that you can do philosophy without paying attention to language because that's where philosophy is done in language and you know we've got to understand how our instruments work in order to use them properly. I mean, if you're a, an astronomer, you can't say, look, I'm in, I'm interested in the what's going on in um, in space. I'm not I'm not interested in telescopes, so you know don't, I'm not going to spend any time worrying about how my telescope works. I mean, that would be a very naive attitude for an astronomer, and it's a, it's a naive attitude for a philosopher to take the same view of language, that we don't need to bother about language, we'll just use it to talk about the, the world. But I think it, it's, 
as where the, 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 the role of language and philosophy is more like that than like the idea that somehow there's something very specially uh, linguistic about philosophical questions. Uh, for example, you know, it, when, when philosophers are interested uh, in time, you know, people tried to interpret that as really that's just an interest in, in the, the language that we use to talk about time or something like that. But I, I think it's become clear, actually, that a lot of the interesting philosophical questions are about time itself and not just about the language that we use about it. But if we, if we misunderstand the language that we use to talk about time, then we're probably going to reason very, very badly about, about time itself. So we do have to be kind of self-conscious about our uh, use of language, but without, as we're making that, anything like the, the subject matter of philosophy. Would you agree with that, Sue? I'm, I suppose I, yeah, I do agree with that, yeah. Um, of course, time, how we should think about it is a special problem since um, Einstein and all that has really changed our conception of which the natural conception is that just there is an objective, right, you know, flow of things are present, past, and so on. And then, of course, the picture has gotten very different. And this is some case where things outside philosophy have affected um, the philosophical problems themselves. I mean, I, I suppose, I, at least it's attributed to Arthur Pryor. Early on, I had some correspondence with him about this, whether his views were, whether his views were compatible with um, special relativity and so on. And uh, God, some side of the correspondence has been preserved. Right. Yeah. I was going to ask yeah. you how important to you is that you know your views are grounded in common sense. It's a very important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, um, I always think the common sense view, um, well, here I just meant something where maybe physics has undermined what might have been otherwise the natural common sense view. But other than things like that, I think one should preserve that, you know, I mean, Gene Moore, who was famous in the 20th century for advocating that the common sense view of the thing should be preserved as much as possible, maybe altogether, right? I mean, because, um, you know, uh, such common sense uh, knowledge or something like that is that there is a glass of water in front of me or whatever, or there are tables and chairs and people and so on. Uh, those are more certain than any philosophical theory. And uh, people who think that philosophical theory comes first are, are wrong, right? It, uh, these things, are, I mean, are more certain. I mean, that was, I think, Moore's position, and I think he was basically right, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, maybe one thing that's worth saying about the, this example of, of time and special relativity, um, where you know, it seems that in some sense the what counts as present depends on uh, what frame of, of reference you have. I, mean, I think a lot of people, you know, wonder whether there's any room left for philosophy to do anything about a subject like time because they think it could, shouldn't we just leave that to the the physicists? But a common experience one has in in, in dealing with issues like like that, as of course, 
you, you've got to take account of what the physicists have discovered. And, and you know, it, it would not be sensible to try to, to f talk about the nature of time without, without t taking special relativity into account. But the expertise of the physicists does not automatically extend to, to working out what the, the implications are for, um, for, for metaphysics, for what this tells us in less formal terms about the, about the nature of the, the world. And in particular, as it were, just how much of common sense is or isn't undermined by, by the science. I think it's, I mean, that's something that philosophers have their own distinctive skills in, in thinking about, not that it's at all easy. It's just, you know, what the relation is between this, this, what the scientists have discovered and, and common, common sense. And of course, I mean, a good way of dramatizing a piece of science is by presenting it as having refuted some piece of, of common sense. Uh, and I mean, that's maybe a good way of getting grant money. But um, <laughs> it, um, it's often really, when you, when you look at, at the science, you see it doesn't have a, as much of an, an effect in undermining common sense. It may, may not leave common sense exactly where it was, but, but it may not be as, di as disruptive of common sense as you know, that's scientists hyping their own discoveries like to pretend. Right. I, I, I entirely agree, yeah. An important distinction that you stress in eminent necessities between the metaphysical and the epistemological, and uh, you try to separate the notions, and I mean, your analysis of names, your work on, on language led you to that, so. Yes, well, look, uh, it's hard to say something without um, telling people to read the book, but <laughs> one of, a lot of, and, and of course this is a general audience anyway, but um, look, I came to conclude that a lot of the confusions that, well, that were dominant, say, in the Quinean era that I was talking about came from confusing two different things. What is what do we know a priori that is in the absence of anyway much experimental knowledge or anything, right? Or what we, well, there's also what we know for certain, which is a different issue really, because um, a mathematical calculation may be a priori, but it isn't certain you may have made a mistake in the calculation. Anyway, those are epistemic notions, notions about knowledge. Okay, but then, According to me, anyway, what I concluded, and uh, Hillary Putnam had, in some respects, some similar views about this, some sorts of statements, for example, that water is H2O, right, about the, um, or also about uh, necessary properties of particular things, like if this table was made of one substance, the very same table couldn't have been made of another one, right? But that it's made of this substance rather than of that one is not something you necessarily know, but you find out, you find out that water is H2O. So people thought that meant it wasn't necessary, but I think that that's confusing and epistemological with what I call a metaphysical notion or really a notion about 
what might have been, not what may or may not be, you know, for certain, right? And I wouldn't think any counterfactual situation that doesn't contain this very substance, which is H2O, would contain water, right? Um, though we don't know without scientific um, investigation what water consists in, right? That was a discovery of scientists, but once they discovered it, they discovered something which even when we talk about what might have been, should still remain the same. Okay. Yeah. And I, th I think the kind of mistake that that's always correcting, it's, it's an, an example of a very co common kind of philosophical uh, error where people confuse two types of questions. With the, the metaphysical questions, which are about uh, what's, the, what's the nature of the world, with, with the epistemological questions, which are questions about how do we know about the nature of the world. And I think there's a long tradition in philosophy of thinking that you can get more easily between answers to one question and answers to the other than you than you really can. I mean, they, they, it turns out that as one one thing we have to learn is to be constantly separating these questions about the world from the questions about the, the knowledge of the world. E even though, of course, you know, if we're going to answer the the questions about the world, we've got to have knowledge of the of the uh, the world. But but we we shouldn't we shouldn't think that, for example, that the fact that we, we can't answer a question about the world, that we don't know what the answer is, means that there is no answer. Any thoughts about the future of analytic philosophy? I, I mean, I think one important aspect of the, the, the difference is, is this. I mean, that analytic philosophy is a kind of tradition in philosophy uh, that, that tends to put a, a lot of weight on, on uh, logic and... Uh, and it's in some very broad sense scientific in spirit um, r rather than a more literary kind of philosophy. It's a, it's a tradition that goes back to the, uh, the late 19th century, although I think it actually has a lot to, in common with the way that philosophers like Leibniz and Plato actually reasoned. Um, so, but that's sometimes called the Anglo-American tradition, but it's it actually, a lot of it began in uh, the German-speaking world with people like the great logician Gottlob Frege and Rudolf Carnap. And, and then uh, it was kind of more or less evicted from the, um, the German-speaking world by the, the Nazis because so many of the, the people who were practicing this type of uh, philosophy were either uh, Jewish or socialist or, or both. And so there was a, a time after the... Uh, the Second World War, when it was really more or less uh, confined uh, to the English-speaking world. But I think one of the, the biggest uh, changes over the last few de decades uh, has been the way it has uh, spread all, really all over the, uh, the, the globe and, and certainly way, way beyond the, the Western uh, world. So, um, I mean, last week, for example, I was in Yekaterinburg in, in Russia, talking to analytic philosophers from, actually, it's the Asian part of Russia. It's east of the, the Urals, and uh, talking to philosophers there who are doing analytic philosophy. I, I quite often visit China to, to talk to analytic philosophers there. It's, it's very big in uh, South, South America, it's, um, and it's, it's spreading 
uh, over continental Europe again, in, as it were, in some ways just uh, going back to its roots, but also going much further into Eastern Europe. Although, in fact, actually, uh, to some extent, that tradition, one of its early homes was was Poland. But um, but in, for example, you know, for example, in um, in Germany, um, the the sort of Heideggerian tradition is is really in in retreat in German universities and uh, and increasingly, you know, I'm seeing analytic philosophers, you know, in universities all over uh, over Germany, and I think that's actually typical of what's happening in in continental Europe. So, I mean, one very obvious thing to say about where it's going is that it, analytic philosophy has become a a global tradition. It doesn't belong to to any particular uh, nation or language or ethnicity. So, what about the future? So, I think this is good, and yeah, I hope everything um, continues. Um, it's hard for me to know. So, what Tim has pointed out about it spreading, and this just really means um, trying to, to to do sort of careful thought, though maybe it's exaggerated how much we in this tradition really do careful thought all the time. <laughs> Sometimes it's not really true, but compared to some other traditions which think that philosophy isn't proper unless it is obscure and that makes it deep, right? You know, uh, we don't have that so much, at least, right? Um, even though the, a lot of public, even like say in the United States, they think, oh, this is the deeper stuff. And yes. they, they don't know what they're reading, but it must be something quite exciting or something, right? Yeah, it's, now, like, it's like people who judge how, how deep a river is by, uh, by whether you can see to the bottom. So, so that they, they, they think that a, a, what is in fact a shallow but very muddy river is, must be deeper than, than one with clear water. Right. <laughs> okay. Yes, so, okay. So, yeah. you want me to tell me my fantasy, though? Okay. What's no, your fantasy? No, I mean, she actually asked me to say this. So, what will happen in many years when I am dead? So, I hope. Analytic philosophy will be continuing. Unfortunately, then works may be being produced refuting all my ideas, and I will be, if there were any afterlife, thinking, oh God, I could answer this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, right. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Okay, well, this is so. <laughs> Thank you very much, both of you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Now you've listened to today's episode, why not head over to halalightgetsin.org to get your tickets to the world's largest music and philosophy festival. We are offering Philosophy for Our Times listeners 20% off their ticket prices for a limited time only by using discount code PODCAST20 at the checkout. That's 20% off your ticket price using discount code PODCAST20. Head over now to halalightgetsin.org to get your ticket. If you want more on today's topic, then why not give a listen to episode 165, in which you can hear Saul Kripke debate his ideas in Lost in Language with Hilly Lawson, Paul Bogossian and Sylvia Jonas. 
please do also head over to our website for our latest episodes and podcast playlists created for you. And of course, tune in next week for more debates and talks with the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.